Hello and welcome to Politics in the Pulpit. This is a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of whether and how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Beth Alison Glenny, I'm the Baptist Union's Public Issues Enabler and I'm working as part of the Joint Public Issues team. Each week I'm joined by a guest from a different place or space on the political or preaching landscape. And today I'm very pleased to introduce Sue Richardson, who is Chair of Ch Church Ax Action for Tax Justice. Did I get that out right? Prepositions, <laughs> you know, are really important. <laughs> and then recently, um, you've recently retired from being Christian Aid's Theology Advisor as well. And um, I think many people who are involved on the kind of um, church justice scene will will have heard your name or seen your name in various places and spaces. But we're really glad to welcome you here today, Sue. Um, could you could you just uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, politics and pulpit and maybe what does that question mean to you? Oh, it's a really contentious question sometimes, isn't it? Because people assume that you're going to use that space, and that's a very privileged space, the pulpit to me. I treat it with a great deal of respect. Especially, I have to add as a sort of red herring, I'm a Roman Catholic laywoman. So within my tradition, the pulpit is not where you would find me, not necessarily because I'm a woman, but particularly because I'm not ordained. So being given access to a pulpit in other people's traditions has always been to me a real gift to be explored and a space to be occupied with a lot of respect. So when people think that if you're going to talk about politics in the pulpit, you're going to get up there and you're going to use that space to bang on about a particular viewpoint and recruit people um, to support that viewpoint, they are wrong in terms of how we understand politics. But on the other hand, they're really right in terms of how we understand the journey that we're making as believers in this world, faced on the one hand with, with what goes on in our lives, and on the other hand, with what we're discerning God is inviting us to do in those lives within our communities and our wider nations and globe. So there is a partisan element coming from the pulpit, but I would hope that that is never a, um, a political with a big P, but is political in the sense that it's about our lives, it's about our polis, it's about how we organize ourselves to live together in the best and most creative way we can with other creatures on this planet in the way God wants us to. Hmm. So, so from your context, is there a particular justice issue or a key political event that you'd, you'd want our preachers to be listening to or thinking about? Well, the news is full of the G7 and the run up to the big G20 meeting later in the summer. And it's important to have the significant leaders of nations come to our country and meet together. The content of that meeting has been holding my attention for some weeks because Joe Biden, newly elected president of the United States, brought to that meeting of the G7 a proposal for corporate tax. Really exciting, Beth, really riveting, the sort of things that people love to think about over their morning cup of coffee. But for me, having newly taken up this role as chair of Church Action for Tax Justice, how we organize our tax measures, both on a national and an international level, is very challenging and interesting. And it's not just about our individual tax here, it's about the multinationals who now push and drive so much of our cultural, economic, social life, and how you hold them to account 
for the way they generate income from us mostly and then get to hold it or surrender it as tax to people who need those resources to improve the well-being of their own nations. So I've been really consumed with this issue just for the last few days and I expect that it will run and run right through the summer. Hmm. Um, I think I was there, so I was asked my JPIC colleagues as well what they're what they're listening out for in the news or in the political world and to kind of think about what it is that um, they'd want us to draw um, into our attention. They've obviously said that too around the G7 so that that's absolutely it and just all of the um, other conversations that are going on in that around climate change um, and a fairly weak um, commitment to vaccine distribution which is kind of uh, mm. captured headlines as well. Um, uh, this week um, it's been uh, is, is going to also be dominated by a huge conversation around the roadmap out of our lockdown restrictions. Yeah. Um, we record these on Monday they go out kind of Tuesday Wednesday um, so by this by the point people are, are listening to this they will they will know what that means a little bit more um, but I'm sure that that's going to be the thing that dominates also a lot of our um, our own thinking as as those who are kind of involved in different bits of church life and making the kind of practicalities work as things open back up again and what that means so um so we're aware of that it's also refugee week this week um which is a week-long festival celebrating the contribution of refugees and displaced people to our society and communities um and you may be interested in listening to um the gordon brown lecture from um last night um that uh, was available um, through JPIT channels and various others. Um, it's going to be available on YouTube to watch um, at your leisure, uh, which was um, promoting a, a kind of, a it was a launch event for kind of work that Methodist Church particularly are gonna be doing on justice. So um, just commend that to you for your interest if you're interested in those sorts of things. So we've, um, we've the world is where it is, um, different justice issues ongoing, and we come to our scripture. And um, so we've um, got the lecture this week and there, um, we're in this space of the ordinary ordinary time where we can jump about a bit with different Old Testament readings. Um, so we've got um, seemingly three Old Testament readings this week from my my calculation. So I think something has gone wrong with my reading of the lecture and this is where I'm, I'm going to claim my Baptist roots moments. Um, but we've got definitely 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Um, and we've got 1 Samuel 17, David, Jonathan and Saul and that conversation going on. There is the option of Job 38 lingering around, um, but I don't think we're going to touch that today. Uh, I've got Mark 4 for the gospel and we've got 2 Corinthians 6 um, as well for the for the epistle. So um, I wonder, Sue, um, in looking at the text and, and having a think, um, what was it that jumped out for you? Is there a theme? Is there a particular text? Is there an idea? Where would you begin? Well, the first thing that jumped out for me actually was, oh no, it's David and Goliath. <laughs> I mean, it did. It hit me so hard. Why? Because it's such a well-known story. And that makes it very hard sometimes to speak about because people have fixed ideas and often they get wrapped in them and they're either not open, open to what you want to say or you find yourself falling back in into that story in the old way. Now, the other two, a uh, very short gospel reading about a natural phenomenon being stilled by Jesus's action, that I think that's really difficult to address as on its own in the light of our life in the world, where to be frank, we don't have much power over winds, waves, earthquakes and tsunamis and things. 
But I do think it links with what I eventually dug out of that Old Testament passage. And perhaps before I tell you what I think it is, I'd like to tell you about the method I use when I approach texts like this, both for preaching and if I'm running a session. I, I run sessions called New Approaches to Bible Reading, which are based on a Brazilian approach called the Popular Reading of the Bible. And that's very particular in that it starts with life. So it starts with, just as you've asked me, what's going on in your life at the moment? What's top of your agenda? And it invites people to respond out of that to the essence of the text. But then it goes into the text for a very close reading. And it's this that often generates the real fruit that takes you down paths you haven't otherwise explored. So what would be the bad news, for instance, in the text we've got today. Given that we're, we're living in a very difficult world, I think the texts show us difficulties in the lived experience of David, Saul, even Goliath. It doesn't end well for him, does it? Um, but also that that retelling of Paul in that Corinthians passage about all the trials and tribulations he's had, and then the encounter with the natural forces that the disciples have, it's very clear that the world isn't a straightforward, it's not an easy place. There are obstacles to be overcome, our personal challenges, hurts and disappointments, the times in which we live. But there is good news in the text too, and fundamentally I would say, so this would be the base message, it seems to me that there is nothing that we can live or encounter that is outside the concerns, interests, and purposes of God. Nothing. But, there's a big but here, the danger is that as Christians, as believers, we often tend to spiritualize that sort of assurance in a way that isn't really practical to us as we live, or we actually oversimplify what it means to be within the interests, the concerns, the purposes of God. And I think this passage shows us um, a movement through a situation which starts in conflict. So I'm back in the Old Testament now. We're taken straight into this encounter with the Philistines. And actually, 1 Samuel is full of encounters with the Philistines. It goes on and on, this war. But this has reached a particular stalemate because from the ranks of the Philistines has emerged this incredible champion, this military champion. And the text really bigs him up. So I'm doing what my colleagues in Brazil would do now. I'm reading it through verse by verse, looking for verbs, looking for descriptions, looking for what's actually going on. And it's clear that in this text, Goliath is presented as the man of the moment. He's full of experience. He's a warrior. He's got immense resources with him. His armor is delineated. He's huge. <laughs> you know, there is, a, there is a variety of opinions about how huge, but he's still a big man. And he storms out of the Philistine camp for 40 days on the trot, basically looking for someone to fight in single combat. And on that single combat, the whole future of Philistine relations with Israel uh, will depend. And what you see here is, is Saul in the other camp, who is leading the Israelites. Now, in terms of what I said before about nothing being outside the concern of God, this is Saul who has been anointed by Samuel. As king, the king the Israelites wanted, as God's man for the times, and he's sitting there in the camp and he's not responding to this challenge. In fact, he and his, his warriors around him are actually terrified by this challenge, despite the fact that Saul wasn't an unimpressive figure. We're told elsewhere that he was, you know, quite, quite attractive to look at. He was powerful. He's also got armor. 
We know that because he tries to give it to David. So it's not that he's going to go out there and just fight with a stick. He's got his armor. He's experienced. Why isn't he going out to meet Goliath as his people might expect him to? Because this notion of being a king brings with it responsibilities for the care of those who are under you. But he doesn't. He cowers in his tent. 40 days this has gone on. This is a long time to be witnessing to powerlessness, really. And he doesn't send anybody else. It seems at this point that Saul isn't confident of his relationship with God, that Saul is not getting the resource he needs from feeling that the living God, as David will describe him, is actually operant in his life and standing with him for whatever reasons. He just seems psychologically a little undermined. And then up pops David. Now, the danger for us in this story is that in all the pictures, we see David is about four foot ten. You know, he's dressed in a little tunic. He's got his sling. He's essentially a boy coming to do a man's work. And there are a number of ways we interpret this. We go, oh, this means God is always on the side of the weak and powerless and will enable them to prevail. But the world doesn't show us that, to be honest. It shows us that often the weak are pushed to one side. Also, there's this idea that, well, David's a bit wily and cunning, and he realizes that what he has at his disposal is a weapon that can actually penetrate right through all those protections the Philistine has surrounded him with, the shield, you know, the armor. And yes, that's true. Maybe that's part of it. But what it seems to me that David brings to this encounter with Saul is a personal challenge about how are you looking after those for whom you're responsible? He tells Saul, I'm a shepherd. So he's looking after sheep. Now, to be a shepherd in those days wasn't a soft option. You went out there, you lived with your sheep. You had to be particularly tough, hardy, alert. You led your sheep in a variety of ways. You didn't always just go out to the front and expect them to follow. Sometimes you were at the back. You had to look out for the stragglers, the ones who were hurt, wounded, couldn't keep up, the ones whose instincts told them to wander off. Being a shepherd is a form of leadership. And, and David brings that to this encounter, and I don't think we should discount that. And although he doesn't throw it in Saul's face, he describes what he does to protect his sheep, which is to take on the biggies, the wolves, the bears, the lions, and he will pursue them remorselessly to protect his sheep. Therefore, he is willing, he says, for the living God, because of the insult that the Philistines are offering the living God, and this is the first time God's mentioned in the whole passage, to go out there and take on Goliath. And Saul thinks it's ridiculous. Mm. Saul thinks if he goes, he really should wear all the armor, which is really provoking because if Saul thinks David should wear it and go out there, why wasn't Saul prepared to wear it and go out there? I don't think Saul is confident this is going to go well, but he sends David out in armor and David tries it on and it's too heavy. He can't use it. So he falls back on his experience. He falls back on what he knows and what he has to hand his sling and his stones. Okay, so why do I think this is relevant to the G7 and all that's going on? I think that we're facing in the world really serious issues at this time, huge issues. And they seem to be protected from our activity on them by a lot of complications, a bit like Goliath was from this single combat. Our tendency and the tendency of our leaders is to try and respond to those challenges using the same tools, using the same mindset as the problem itself displays. You know, they say, if you've only got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, we tend to think if someone is threatening us with violence, say through a nuclear arms race, the best thing for us to do 
is to build up more defensive or even offensive weapons, say, through the decisions we've made about our latest Trident spending, at the same time as cutting aid. And we seem to be locked into this idea that it's only the big, the powerful, the successful that will make an impact. And actually, this is where Paul comes in, because he references that expectation and says, this isn't how I've preached the gospel. Mm -hmm. I have just held to my mission and all these things have happened to me. And yet I have still prevailed. And I'm asking you to be open minded about where the new message, the important message comes. In this stalemate, the important message comes from David. We have to look at new ways of addressing this challenge. And that means not just falling back on God, although David is pretty confident he's got God with him. He himself has been anointed in the previous chapter. But also, what do we have to hand that we can use in ways that are creative, even wily, to address this problem so that we don't inflate the conflict or the violence or the difficulty that we are facing, but we start to unpick it. And so I think as a community, as a nation and internationally, we need to be asking ourselves, are, is the way we respond to big challenges always the right way? If we meet militarization with militarization, is that the right way? If we look at climate change and think the only way we can deal with this is by continuing to pursue the things that make life possible here, despite their consumption and despite the impact on the world, and aren't willing to believe that people can be different. Leaders can be different. We can lead less like people who are going to go out there in single combat and take it all on and more like shepherds. You know, there could be said to be a reference here to Jesus's own words about himself in John's gospel about I am the shepherd. I lay down my life for my flock. I don't get the feeling our leaders are willing to lay down their lives for us. I get the feeling they're willing for us to lay down our lives in pursuit of whatever goals they have, which are often about overcoming in the same way that the threat is inviting them to consider that they might be um, defeated. So what am I saying about this passage? I'm saying I think it offers us another way to be and the confidence that God is there with us. But I would want to say one last thing, Beth. I would want to say that the confidence of having God with you is not the same at all as saying God is on my side. You know, uh, Goliath actually believes that. He believes his gods are on his side. Mm -hmm. God is not on anyone's side, but God is always present. And God moves. We've seen in this passage, God moves when those who are previously thought thinking they are in his purpose and in his way diverge from that. God will move and find a new champion. And we well, need to be alert for that. Um, I was going to say uh, two things, which is that always in Samuel, there's this contrast, isn't there, between the heart, what's in the heart and whose heart is right with God exactly. and, and the external appearance, which is despite the fact that we like the Bible is like, it's not about the external appearance. It's constantly making the point about what they all look like, which is fascinating to me as well, because even the way we narrate the story is constantly about telling us the details about this yeah. person and this person looked like this and that person looked like that and um so there's constant but there's constant questions there about hearts being right and and whose heart is right with God and that's the ultimately the contrast ever drawn by David and Saul because we often think of this as David versus Goliath but it really becomes David versus Saul um, yeah. and and then kind of the in Israel's history who what sort of a king you know that kind of question isn't it um but I was thinking about the thing you were saying about the, whose side and I was really struck that in um in, in Mark, um, in the gospel reading, um, there's this big conversation about kind of the, 
you know, let us go across to the other side. This is what Jesus yeah. said. And, and this is journey across the lake out of what is kind of metaphorically on one side, the kind of, um, you know, kind of this safe Israelite kind of, you know, this home Jewish territory to the Gentile kind of space on the other side. And and they don't use the word lake, like they could use the word lake, in, but Mark doesn't use the word lake. He uses the word sea and he's making this kind of cosmic point at the same time, isn't he? You're going into the place of chaos. You're going to this other side. What's it mean to be on the other side? What's it mean to journey out? And they make this trip twice. They go, out and back again now and back again so we hear we have this kind of repeat in chapter eight and mark do we where they kind of um and on the way out into into the gentile territory there seems to they seem to meet storms <laughs> seems to be what happens it was quite common on that sea but then you see my feeling is the disciples knew that right yeah <laughs> so they venture out in a way knowing risk yes and, and then they panic and then they find, oh, Jesus is with them. And eventually things die down. I think our temptation is to go always, oh, if we say Jesus is with us, it'll all be fine. No, they still have to go out and experience that and get and to I, the other side. I found the, I found the commentary really helpful that said um, where Jesus is sitting on a cushion, like we see him asleep on the cushion, and we think, oh, it's a nice little detail. He's got a cushion in a boat. Well, no, he's sitting in the place of the pilot, right? He's meant to be hand on the hand on the tiller. You know, Jesus, take the wheel. He's meant to be there with hand on the tiller, guiding this boat. And um, and he's not. He's fast asleep. He's not doing his job. He's completely falling asleep. And uh, and so this kind of question then of like, well, what is Jesus doing? Where is he? What's this about? Like, um, you know, because he should be he should be in the stern on the cushion guiding and driving, and he seems to be absolutely fast asleep. And and I think that's um I perhaps I think it's a more pastoral than political story. Um, but if if you're kind of thinking there's sort of the narrative of of kind of um we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats kind of what does it mean that it feels like Jesus is asleep at the wheel here and he's not really guiding this along and this is chaos and it's symbolically chaos on a cosmic scale um you know the kind of water is the symbol of chaos what does it mean then that that Jesus is maybe not not doing this but then the conversation of, of well he says why are you afraid have you still no faith still not got it and it's well, what would have faith looked like what was faith meant to look like in a in a setting with a huge big storm and Jesus not driving a boat properly and was it meant to be that the disciples took over driving the boat or was it meant to be that they didn't panic I I guess what I yeah I kind of well, the person who's that. interested in the panic because panic. the disciples are panicked we are going to be panicked and very despondent at times looking at the world. And it seems to me, do we just gather that to ourselves and that's all that we are? Or is there a way in which we can actually commit to dealing with the panic, understanding that God looks absent from this? You know, God is absent from that whole chapter in Samuel until David brings him in mm. and find a way of reorientating ourselves to, to find Jesus asleep. You know, maybe they in the, in the storm, they're like, well, where's he gone then? And they had to go and look for him and wake him up. Um, God, God was awoken to the plight of the Israelites um, by the cries of the people. So the panic is actually not insignificant here, it seems to me. It may be the thing that provokes us to realise that we are not totally in control. There are things that will batter us. Um, we have to hold fast. 
we have to resist the Messiah complex that says we can still the storm. We can't. We can make all this right by personal combat. We can't. And yet we also have to take some responsibility for bringing what we have, both in terms of experience and resources to the problem and seeing how we get through, even if we don't get to the other side, even if we never see the end of it. It seems to me we just have to commit to that journey. Mm. Yeah. And I think, um, I guess there's a how question as well. It's not just the what we endure, but the how do we endure it is the kind of thing that Paul is really talking about, isn't it? Yes. You know, he went through all these experiences of, um, you know, affliction and hardship and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labours and sleepless nights and hunger. Um, But he did it by, you know, uh, purity, knowledge and all these, you know, this kind of, this kind of it's like a manual isn't it I I survived (laughs) we survived all of this stuff that's very political um by being this sort of a character um except he's obviously doing this into saying all this stuff into a situation which is clearly not reconciled and not comfortable and it's clearly very humanly fallen out on a very kind of normal tension level of human existence and polis that's not quite as it could be um so it's really interesting to me that this is all spoken into a very broken relationship. <laughs> the thing that reminds me of living in a cardboard box in the streets, and asked um, her, more or less, do you blame God for your flight? She looked at me like I was completely mad, and she went, "No, no, <laughs> they do in Brazil. They have this very sort of inflected language. No, he's here with me in the box." So her God at that point was not a powerful God who would still the storm or prevent the beatings and all these things Paul experienced, but a God who had chosen to be there, perhaps enduring that kind of thing. And she found that an immense strength. It didn't put her situation right, but it did free her, it seemed to me, from bitterness and anger and the desire to give up. She just held on with God in her box. And it wasn't an escapist thing. You know, this is the other challenge that somehow if we just go, oh, God will deal with it. We can sail through like complacent Christians. It's not saying miss the strain and the struggle. It's saying enter the strain and the struggle because you have a champion alongside you. It would put Goliath, you know, into a cockpit, really. Um, But God deliberately makes himself weak sometimes in order to sustain those who are weak in the terms we see in the world and are dismissed to message us from there that we need to wake up and as you say discern what's going on at the heart rather than what's the show that we're looking at we've um we've not much talked about the alternative old testament readings and then um, just gonna nod back to um the other one which is a little bit further on from the reading we had with david and goliath um from 1 samuel 17 that some people might be using the end of that to, into 1 mm. samuel 18 um, and there's a whole question of what is it for um, the soul of Jonathan uh, to be bound to the soul of David and to love him as his own soul. And there's this kind of um, it's interesting. I I've, I read about I checked in about four or five books this morning um, to see in the kind of various books that I have on my clergy bookshelf that I'm sure many people do that say something like the Bible, sex and what does it say? Um, and <laughs> <laughs> and and I've got lots of these sex sexuality bible books and they all have something along the lines of those in it gender usually comes in somewhere too and um and sort of flicking through them how this actually was not something that any of them were talking about um but it seems to me the question that any teenager certainly listening to that passage on a Sunday morning would be asking is is this not a same-sex relationship in scripture 
seeming to be covenanted and what does that mean and um i think um it you know we're going to raise the political questions well this is kind of a political this is one of those moments where politics and faith has really met and it is incredibly divisive in our churches and across yeah pretty much every church this is a really divisive conversation but i think um i think it would be worth saying i would want to say don't don't do it badly do it well if you're going to talk about that um and um and that i would also uh i think i think i'm really struck that we obviously can't be anachronistic about our reading of like imposing a relation like you know this these people exactly. david goes on and gets married so we're not saying yeah. this is kind of um we're not saying this is it's just functions entirely as we would see a relationships understanding today because it's not the same situation it's not the same possibilities but it seems to be something about covenanted relationship in a particular way that opens up to me a question that I think it's worth holding and I think if we talk about who is othered in church life that that's you know it's pride month this month this is a community that is often othered and um and I think I wonder if Paul is so cross in the middle of the passage because even if uh, nobody else thinks this is what's happening that's maybe what he thinks is happening that he thinks this is a same-sex relationship um and um and therefore what does that mean and what, what how shocking that might be to have be deeply in the middle of this um israelite family ruling nation um so i just i i just raise that kind of political uh <laughs> controversy and shove it out there without without being resolved in time, but, um, but I just think it's important to name the question there um, because if you it's there and and these are the questions that are there. there there are many questions about justice and injustice and where the church falls on those um, is constantly um, debated and reflected upon and thought about but I think um, you know if we're talking about journeying to other sides if we're talking about how God mm. wants people you know who 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 should be leading who should be uh, showing us the way kind of in those different scripture passages how do we endure and how do we respond with graciousness through things that are really challenging what's it mean to love what's it mean to have your heart right with God I mean it's one of those questions that's in there isn't it so I raise it as a question <laughs> suitably watching the time tick towards <laughs> 30 minutes <laughs> so we can raise it as a question and uh, and disappear off um so I wonder um before we do disappear off having just landed that grenade um I, is there anything else that you kind of think that if you were preaching this week, um, would you be wanting to do it in a, you know, is there something that you'd use, is some way you'd want to do it, is there something particularly you kind of, how you would land it, I guess? Um, I suppose when I craft a sermon, you know, and I, I do work very hard at them, if I was just invited to speak, I always used to just no, I to prepare, but I would be more relaxed about how I might deliver it because you can always go back and shut something in if you missed it. When you're preaching, it seems to me you're trying to tell a story and you want to take people through the experience of hearing that story. And you do want to land something. You want to land an idea that will sit with them. And I always start then by trying to illustrate the dilemma we're going to encounter in the story, the questions we're going to raise with something from experience, my experience that has raised a similar thing. So I'd be looking for an event in my life where, you know, I'd been faced with a huge obstacle and my instinct had been, right, this is how I'm going to do it. And then reflection on what was really going on. My Brazilians are really, really, my Brazilians are really, really keen that you ask what is actually going on here. What was going on in David and Goliath was a failure of the established way of dealing with 
something had to break that open. So I'd start by looking in my life to say, this is how I intended to respond, I planned it, and then suddenly something else needed to be done and it broke a stalemate. In order then to go to the text and say, you know, what do you see going on here? Who do you who do you resonate with? Where do you find yourself in easily in this story? And does it pose questions for you? Because it seems to me that the scripture shouldn't be giving us answers so much as it should be inviting us to ask new questions of our times. Mm. And that might involve agreeing that there are some things that are so culturally fixed, we can't deal with them here in that easy way. But generally, there is some sort of theme. And for me, it's that business you raised about what is at the heart of the people here that God sees and we don't. We just see their kingship or their eruption as a small, difficult shepherd boy. You know, and how do we unpack that and make it relevant to the kind of people we encounter and see about us today? Hmm. Well, on that brilliant, uh, brilliant comment, I'm going to um, thank you very much, Sue, for uh, bringing your wisdom and your thoughts and your preparation and all that you've uh, brought to today. And I hope I know it will be uh, much for people to chew over as they go back into these well-worn passages, but with something very new and a bit different, I think. So thank you very much. Um, and um, and to thank everybody who's tuned in. Um, and I'm, I'm asked to, to say, could you please shamelessly um, uh, give us like a review or a like in any of the channels of how you listen to us. So if that's on YouTube or if that's on um, iTunes, whatever it is that your your method of choice is, please do um, like us and um, endorse us. And that gives us a bit more um, of a bump into the world. Um, so I'm, I'm told to tell people to do that. So um, I feel very cheesy asking for that. Uh, but there we go. I'm, I'm going to shamelessly ask. And um, and then we're going to go out with a blessing um, as we pray for everybody who's preaching and everybody who's involved in the work of polis and making the world um, a better place for people to be. So let's pray. May we be anointed with God's spirit as we bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free. Amen.